With issues like healthcare rights and election integrity on the line this November, there's reason to be concerned about the future of the U.S. The good news, you can help. With no more than six hours a week, you can volunteer with Tech for Campaigns and use your design skills to help swing district Democrats win local elections. State and local races often come down to only a few hundred votes. Having a strong digital presence and reaching new voters through digital ads and email campaigns can be what makes the difference. Democracy needs you. Volunteer at techforcampaigns.org forward slash volunteer. This is Sarah Tebow, and I am the host of the SideWoo podcast. Join me for conversations about mental health and metaphysical issues from the lens of living a more creative, fulfilling, and connected life. From the physical to the metaphysical and beyond, welcome to the SideWoo. Hi, SideWooers. Welcome to the show. Hello from Paris. I am currently in my hotel room enjoying the taste of a fresh croissant in my mouth. The sun is just coming up. I've been awake for about three hours. I am just raring to go. And I'm super delighted this week to share an interview with artist Ron Moultrie Saunders, who is an artist and resident of the 1240 Minnesota Street Studios, which is part of the Minnesota Street Project in San Francisco. And I've known him since about 2016, since we were residents together. And much of our conversation is about the ways in which he cultivates and tends to his many communities, especially focusing on African-American artists in San Francisco and Oakland and the East Bay and beyond with his projects like Black Space Residency and the 3.9 Collective. I say this in the the conversation, but I just want to reiterate that he is constantly on the go. He's like working on a million projects and he's running all over town, going to see friends shows. So, you know, I just am really drawn to his generous spirit. And I think we can learn a lot from him and his attitude and approach to building community and really focusing on people as a way to stay connected and you know, grow as an artist too. We also talk about ancestors and ancestry.com. We talk about his giant plants and his artistic process. He is a photographer and uses photograms in his work. This interview was recorded at the Space Program Residency in July 2023. If you have any thoughts or feedback about the episode, as always, please do not hesitate to reach out. You can email us at thesidewoo at gmail.com. We're open to sponsorship ideas and collaborations as well. If you enjoy our episode, feel free to subscribe, rate, review, and share the side woo with your woo-woo friends on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram at the side woo for updates. So thank you so much. I look forward to sharing this with you. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. Welcome, Ron Moultrie Saunders. <laughs> Thank you. How did you, so is Moultrie your middle name? Yes. It was my great-grandfather's first name. Oh, cool. And so I'm a junior as well. Oh, my goodness. Whoa. How was going through life as a junior? It was fine. I didn't think anything of it as a kid. You didn't you have know? the pressures of father? No, because the family called me Ronnie. Oh, cool. So, Which is different than yeah. your dad. And then when I got in, when I was in school, elementary school, up through high school, I was called Ronald. When I got to college, people called me Ron. So they just decided what <laughs> nicknames to give you, uh-huh. and you weren't so in charge of that? Yeah. Okay. And Ron was fine. It was just okay. very casual, not formal. Yeah. Ronald's very formal. Yeah, I was going to say, don't peg you as a Ronald whatsoever. <laughs> I don't really peg anyone as a Ronald, though. That's kind of like a, I just associate Ronald with Ronald McDonald. Uh-huh. But now that I'm saying that, my grandpa's name was Romuald with an M, and it's French-Canadian. Mm. So it makes me wonder if there's some connection between the name Ronald and the French. Could be. There is a connection. Ronald derives from Reginald. Oh, interesting. 
And that ALD, I feel like, was very French. Yeah, nicknames are funny because I people would call me by my last name a lot and just decided they were going to call me Teebs. Mm-hmm. And no one listening is allowed to call me Teebs. Just putting that out there. Because <laughs> at some point I was like, no, you can't call me Teebs anymore. But, you know, independently from high school into college, someone just picked it up. And I'm like, right. but I didn't tell anyone that that was the nickname. <laughs> so it happened it, it does. definitely happened but i like ron yeah it's, it's short simple yeah direct when you're the three names has a nice ring to it anyway now that we're done analyzing your names well did you want to talk about the middle name sure oh sure yeah if you want well only thing i'll say recently because i'm very interested in genealogy oh, you but are. i haven't dug into it very deeply Occasionally, it's like, yeah, I'll spend some time, let's get some information. Yeah. Do you go on um, Ancestry.com? Yeah. <laughs> I just got on there, which is why it's, I think we're talking about it. because It's kind of scary yeah. when you see what information they have. It's like, oh, my gosh. When I first started, they didn't have as much information. Now they yeah. have your records where you lived and who lived at that address before. Everything. It's really. Like even you? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Because I ironically don't think I've added myself. I just started with my parents. So I haven't even checked to see what they have about me. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Recently, I found out talking to a cousin of mine who lives in Georgia. I asked her about the name Moultrie. Yeah. And she wasn't sure about it, but she did tell me that there's a part of our family that's definitely from South Carolina. Okay. And I've, I've seen streets with the name Moultrie, and I was wondering. Oh, I've seen the name Moultrie on Bernal Heights. Yeah, exactly. That's, That's where like, I saw it. What, what's his name doing here? And so I was talking with some friends about going to Charleston. I'd never been. And I just happened to zoom in on the map, and I was like, there's a Lake Moultrie? Oh, my gosh. So I was like, okay, I got to go. And so this is just a recent discovery. And, of course, it's derived from some European name. Yeah. Yeah. How does that feel to do your tree and have that come up? Have you been able to get past America in terms of records or? Not really, but a friend of mine, what did he send me? He sent me something and it basically showed it was either a Saunders or a Moultrie who were slave owners. Yeah. This part of history is nothing I can do about it. We just have to accept it and look at it and see if those people are how they're related to you. Right. And just very neutral kind of thing. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, for me, I look at my past and know that some of them were slave owners. Or And again, it's not something that like I'm excited about, but it is just interesting to know your history and mm-hmm. just, yeah, it really, you have to kind of approach it with no judgment. Yeah. Because I, I don't think anybody back then did. Yeah. yeah. You know, it, talk about the presidents and, yeah, they had slaves mm-hmm. because that was the thing at the time. Yeah. They may have believed in something else, but they weren't practicing because economics. I don't know. Do you have what I wanted to ask you this later, but I feel like since Ancestry.com came up, it might be a good point to ask how you view the idea of ancestors. I know people often think of ancestors as only their family lineage in this lifetime. But then I don't know if you believe in past lives at all. Oh, yeah. You do? And how do you think of that? And do you know what past lives you've had or? No. Okay. I don't. So you haven't done work around that? I I saw a psychic probably 25 years ago. Mm. And they weren't able to tell me exactly. Hmm. But it's not everyone's strong suit. It's kind of a niche tool. Yeah. And I think the only thing that came up was Nubian. I'm like, okay, but nothing else. I do think about my ancestors a lot and I ask them for guidance. And that goes back to not so much my great grandmother, but I still have a very strong memory of her. I mean, she died probably when I was about seven years old. But I have a very strong memory of her. And occasionally I'll see photos of her, and she looks Jewish. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Was she? Really pale skin. Well, interesting you ask about that. I guess that's hard because <laughs> being Jewish gets passed on through the mother's side, so that's like a very specific lineage. Exactly. So 
the mythology was that my great grandfather was Jewish and married an Indian woman. Okay. Well, according to the charts, <laughs> that's not the case. And my aunt, who's probably about 83 years old, lives in Charlotte now, has been doing a lot of research on the family because she's written her autobiography, which she wants to pass down to her grandkids. And so she did a lot of research. She said, there's no Jewish she was Irish. So, yeah. So she was I part Irish mm. because of slavery and, and the mixing yeah. of blood. So it's like, oh, okay. So she was Irish. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know how to respond to that, but that's kind of cool to it, find yeah, that out. Yeah. I mean. So I'm like, and then, and that made sense looking at the chart mm. that Ancestry did and seeing, oh, so it's Irish. There's no Jewish. And because of the way it works, there's a minuscule amount of American Indian. So I really can't claim that yet, although family mythology lives on. Yeah, and you, you may be able to go back <laughs> further. And, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, my grandmother was very close to, died several years ago. And my mother died at age 61 in 1998. So I do have ancestors that I call on. I was like, get me through this. What am I supposed to do? Mm. And when that happens, that just means I need to sit and be still. Yeah. I felt a lot of strong female energy from your side as I was mentally preparing for this interview. Mm -hmm. I felt like they were present mm -hmm. and like, do it. I don't know. They're, I felt it. And I feel them right now energetically supporting this conversation and they're glad to be mentioned, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're there all the time. And I think, I don't know if people are afraid to open to it or just want to deny that it exists, but it's there. I think it's easy to forget or if you have maybe one grandparent or you have a part of your family that you don't feel proud of or something for some reason or it's a little challenging, I think it's easy to abandon your family in a way or mm -hmm. like to not want to identify with your ancestors. Or I don't know if I'm explaining it right, but I know for me, like having some family challenges, I'm one of my grandparents' side and I wasn't always so interested in my roots mm -hmm. and, in mm -hmm. a way that I should have been. And I think now as I'm older and understanding like what all they went through mm -hmm. to get to where they were when I actually met them, I have so much more compassion and mm -hmm. interest in their journey. Mm -hmm. And then that has kind of opened me up to like receiving energy or love from them. Mm -hmm. And is something I hope to continue to do, especially as I'm looking into the family history and just thinking about the journey of their ancestors, mm -hmm. you know? And yeah, it's, it's just like this endless cord <laughs> that we're all connected to. Well, and it's not a single cord. Yeah. And I say that because my grandfather on my father's side, who grew up in South Carolina, left his first wife, moved to New York. Oh, wow. His last name was Sanders. Oh. When he got to New York, he added a U and it became Saunders. Was that to kind of cut ties or? Oh, well. Because he didn't divorce the first wife. It's a little shady. So it gets a little complicated. And it's like, how do you track that? <laughs> Have you done like the DNA thing or? Well, through Ancestry, but not the full on. Like the 23andMe or whatever. Yeah, I haven't done the DNA yet. I've just been like auto populating in Ancestry.com. Oh, well, yeah, no, I did the DNA through Ancestry. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, maybe we can step back a tiny bit. <laughs> I normally ask what sign are people? Gemini. Gemini. That makes sense, actually, <laughs> in all the ways. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Ascending and sun. Whoa, that's a lot of Gemini. And what's and your moon? My moon is Scorpio. I had a feeling. I'm like, there's something kind of witchy about you, like <laughs> undercover. So that makes sense. But it balances the Gemini. Yeah, Gemini, I can see that with like your, what we're going to talk about today, like your interest in community and just kind of being this like boots on the ground person. I was telling someone here at the residency, we're at Space Program recording this, and I was saying I have this image of you in my head of like with your backpack 
and just scooting around town, you're like, okay, on to my next community gathering, <laughs> you know, and just going from group to group to group and kind of tending in like it's a garden or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know if that resonates with you. It does when I think about it in terms of my activities. Um, yeah. And I would say like, we don't know each other that well, but that's my impression of you from afar. Yeah. And I don't analyze how much I do or where I go on a daily basis. But when, for instance, I'm at Kala Art Institute in Berkeley, working in their space, a couple of artists like, oh, you get around a lot. And I'm like, not really. I go to a couple of shows. Well, you go to a lot more than I do. I do tend to go to quite a few openings, Mm -hmm. particularly I want to support friends. There might be new artists that I met and I want to see their work in person. So I consider that part of the community as well, Uh, getting around and doing things. Maybe you could talk about some of the communities that you're an integral part of. (laughs) Okay. Well, my studio is at Minnesota Street Projects, and there's a program at Minnesota Street Projects that was co-founded by Erica Demon and Ashara Unkundayu called Black Space Residency. I wanted to share a little bit about Black Space Residency before we continue to talk about it. This is from their website. Black Space Residency offers a physical container for imagination, inquiry, activity, and rest for Black creatives working across a myriad of disciplines. The artists and residents have access to a working studio, staging gallery, and production labs for one to three months and are held with care by a small group of master artists and curators who offer mentorship and instruction in visual arts, including digital printing, printmaking, photography, ceramic arts, and woodworks. Operating at the intersection of abundance, well-being, safety, and self-determination, the work is rooted in the love of Black culture and as a means of creating and offering space without any expectation of performative or production output from Black artists. And I help to facilitate the program by giving orientations to the artists that come in on a monthly basis. Um, And that also means plugging myself into the people who are running different aspects of the studio space to let them know about the artists coming in and making connections Mm -hmm. so that the new artists coming in can get an orientation for the ceramics, the wood shop, the digital lab. And that's been going on two years? It's two and a half. It started January 2020? (laughs) No. Bummer. January 2021. Oh, okay. Because we had just everything that closed down when it first That's happened. That's true, yeah. So when things kind of open back up, we're like, okay, let's, we're going to do this. Let's go ahead and start it. Erica Demon was going back to grad school and there was no guarantee that the space that she was in was going to be occupied by another Black artist. So she decided to start a residency program for Black creatives. So we've had collectives in, we've had writers, dancers, photographers, you name it. We've had all sorts of people coming through. The other community that I'm involved with is Kala Art Institute. I had a fellowship there last year, and it was for a year, 24-7 access, a very nice stipend, and it's very diverse, which is it's astounding to see the mix of people that come through on an international scale and also from across the country. And what's interesting, recently I met two Black artists, one from Texas and one from Atlanta, Georgia. And I still don't quite remember how they found out about it. But the facility has been around, or the program's been around for 48 years. I was going to say, it's been since I first moved here in like the 2000s, so. Yeah, so I think they were very, like Archana, who's being celebrated actually for a show at Kalas Gallery on Friday, is one of the co-founders. And mm-hmm. with Nakano, they decided to create a space that was very welcoming and diverse. And so you immediately feel that when you walk in. And everybody who works there is really friendly. The staff is just astounding. You need something fixed, they do it like that. The other group that I've been involved with is 3.9 Art Collective, which was founded, I believe, in 2010. We've been around for quite a while. And that was founded with William Rhodes, who moved here, moved to San Francisco from Baltimore, and was curious about where are the Black artists. 
I just wanted to share a little bit about the mission of the 3.9 Art Collective since Ron talks about it a bit. The 3.9 Art Collective is an association of African-American artists, curators, and art writers who live in San Francisco and come together to draw attention to the city's dwindling Black population. The 3.9 Art Collective bears witness to this phenomenon and seeks to reverse it by drawing attention to the historical and ongoing presence of Black artists in a city and creative expression in its Black communities. Through multiple forms of presentation and outreach, the collective creates and claims spaces to display artwork, nurture young artists, develop educational programs for students, and write about and curate exhibitions meant to generate productive cross-cultural dialogues. The name 3.9 Art Collective was inspired by a census in 2010 that predicted that in the next few years, the Black population of San Francisco would go below 3.9% out of the total population. And I just did a quick check, and right now it's hovering around 5.7. You can imagine out of that number, the number of Black artists is much lower, and the percentage of homeless out of the Black population is 40%. So obviously this is a crisis. The city is talking about doing reparations. Right now they are considering offering $5 million to each Black resident of San Francisco. The last article about it was in March, so I'm not sure how much progress they've made since then. I haven't been able to find anything. But this is definitely something that is an interesting conversation. And I wanted to create that context for some of the projects that Ron is part of. And my response to him was that we're here. We're just scattered all over the city. Yeah. And he wanted to start 3.9 Art Collective. So we got that up and running. And Basically, it's to bring attention to the fact that the Black population and the Black art population is decreasing significantly. Mm. So, And do you find that in San Francisco proper, or is that the whole of the Bay Area? Well, it's the whole of the Bay Area, but, but significantly it has to do with San Francisco. So in order to be a member of the group, you have to live in San Francisco because the numbers were dropping a lot faster, it seems. And it has yeah. a lot to do, again, with economics. Mm -hmm. Artists can't afford, can barely afford to live here. Mm -hmm. And then you put the cost of having a studio on top of that, and it just becomes untenable. It is. And I think one of the challenges is there's just not enough opportunities to make money in order. I feel like there's spaces and there's the occasional award and there's a community of people who really love what they do and want to support each other. But the bottom line is if you're an artist, one of the ways you're going to make money is through selling the work. And there just doesn't feel like that support of the arts by the other people in the cities like of Oakland and San Francisco. It just doesn't feel like the money is there. And so. Well, I think the money is there. Or, it's Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> That there is lots of money there. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah. It's a matter of being able to hook into the network that will support you. Yeah. Which you is know, very challenging. And build the value. I think the people who moved in in the, you know, early days of Facebook and YouTube and everybody, it's they don't have the same values as the people with money in New York or in LA, which has a little bit more traditional interest in you support the arts and you build up artists and you put art in lobbies and da, 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 all that stuff, it feels like the value is not around culture of that kind. It's mm -hmm. more about innovation around technology. And I think a lot of people in the tech industry seem to be interested in this weird kind of minimalism. Mm -hmm. And just it's just not aligned, you know, with mm -hmm. the values of the art world and certainly the artists in the Bay Area. Yeah, I think it, it requires a lot more footwork. The opportunities are there, but they're on a very small scale. Yeah. And it's kind of in line with the scale of the city. Right. And there are opportunities that are coming up, I think, more visibly mm -hmm. now. I remember seeing art in lobbies, for instance. Yeah. But now there are a lot more art consulting businesses that are getting different type of art and mm. more art in those spaces as yeah. opposed to the old white male artists being in the lobby. Like abstract paintings or something. Yeah. yeah. 
Not that I'm putting any shade on the abstract paintings. <laughs> yeah, and they, the abstract is still there. Yeah, it's it still is there because it's 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 easy for people to accept that work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's pleasing. They don't. It doesn't challenge anyone. The, yeah, challenge. Yeah. That's the word. Hi. So I just wanted to defend myself in case any of my abstract painting friends get mad at me after hearing this. I absolutely love abstract painting, and I have nothing against it. I think we all know what I'm talking about, or those who are painters will know what we're talking about when we say abstract art in lobbies or hotels. So just wanted to put that out there. Abstract painters, I love you. Continue the good work that you're doing. Okay, bye. What have you found is the most rewarding out of what you've been doing? And have you seen the type of progress that you'd want to see in terms of integrating more with this new kind of, I don't want to call it a community because it's a new population in San Francisco and the Bay that have really changed the way that the city operates. I think it's changed again since the pandemic. But Yeah, I mean, it's it's very tech heavy. And even now with all of the major department stores closing downtown and then talking about how can we reutilize these spaces, AI has popped up. And so again, Mm -hmm. it's back to technology Mm -hmm. as opposed to thinking about, you know, how can we have diverse economies like LA, Mm -hmm. like New York, which would make it easier for a lot of people to live here. Mm-hmm. by having diverse economies. Mm-hmm. When you're just focused on on putting all your money into one, what are you going to get? And we we got it. We see what's happened. Right. The success of their new AI. Yeah, it's 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 kind of unfortunate that the mindset is not on thinking about how can the San Francisco communities be supported with this as opposed to thinking about it only as a revenue source to support services. Um, to switch gears a little bit, having been part of organizations that are both like have l- more longevity and then ones that are newer, what have you seen are the real measures of success? And what do you see that really works if someone's like part of an organization, a nonprofit-y type thing or a collective? What do you see really works and what have you seen like really does not work and it feels destructive to you? Just for people who are involved in organizations or... Well, it's, I mean, the first thing that pops to mind are all of the art nonprofits Mm -hmm. that seem to be thriving. I don't know how they're doing it. Thinking there's Root Division, there's Soma Arts, there's Intersection for the Arts, which actually helps support artists to learn how to market their work and get it out there. And they're, um, what do you call that? Like a fiscal sponsor, right? They, they offer that service, yeah. but they also have a lot of workshops around how to be an artist because being an artist is a business. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's a creative aspect to it, but it's the smaller portion of it. It could be your entire life if you had money. Right, if you get the funds coming in, yeah. Yeah, but where are the funds going to come from? And for me, I, I, part of the question I didn't answer before, for me, I've been relatively successful by doing public artwork. And my first project opened in 2013, which I did for the San Francisco Art Commission, and it was for a new library in the Bayview. And when I saw how the community responded to this fine artwork in their community, I decided this is the direction I want to go because it's a way of bringing fine art into communities that will not go to museums, they will not go to galleries, they don't know that world. Some of them don't even know that it exists. And so to bring art into communities to me is very valuable. And it's also and because it's in a library, not only do adults see it, but it's also visible to kids. And they may not understand what they're seeing, but there is a book at the library that people can read about the work. And the work is, the work that I did for that project is actually in an outdoor setting in a courtyard and also in the children's area. And it talks about, it refers to the history of the Bayview by pointing out the first Americans who were here, the Native American Indians, and then bringing it to talking about migration by acknowledging people who came from the South by using cotton as part of the 
part of the work mm. and then acknowledging the present environment of Bayview being surrounded by water mm -hmm. and the shipyard and talking about people who came to the Bayview to work in the shipyards. And they were mostly black people who came from the yeah. South to live in San Francisco to work in the shipyard. Oh, wow. That's so cool. And so that's been up since 2013. I always thought of, I don't know, as an artist, yeah, like you think, okay, best case scenario, your gallery gets, you know, 100 people at the opening. And then throughout the week, you get maybe hundreds of people to see your work. Mm -hmm. And it's up for a month and then maybe one person buys it. And that's awesome. But I've always felt that the thing that we miss out on versus writers or musicians is the work exists only in one place at a time. Mm -hmm. And it can be frustrating to feel like you want to share it with so many people and ultimately can only be one place. And mm -hmm. then that's it. And it goes somewhere like in a home or in a storage unit. And so I love the idea of public art as a way to hit a broader audience and serve that public friendly mm -hmm. role that mm -hmm. I think art can. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's when you go to New York and you take the subway, there is art surrounding you everywhere you look. Oh, my God. And people see it. They may not stop. But I notice that if I stop and I'm looking at the work and I'm taking photos of it. People do. People will stop and they're like, what is he looking at? New Yorkers, they're like, we, we're too busy. They, they, they can become engaged. Yeah. But they know it's there. Oh, this is beautiful. Let me keep going. But when they see people actively engaging with looking at the work, they figure, okay, I can take time and look at this as well. Yeah. Yeah, I have a fantasy of doing a mosaic in the subway. I think that would be so fun. They have all these new ones, like Gosh, Marcel Nick Zama. Oh, Nick Cave is the one to see. Oh, I haven't seen that one yet, but I think I saw photos. It's sound suit people, right? Yes. Oh, amazing. Yeah, it's really incredible. Marcel Zama's a little psychotic. Have yes. you seen that one? No. It's like this creepy son with these dark eyebrows kind of like digging into, you know, kind of like furiously looking down at you. And I'm thinking like, and then his little masked acrobat figures. And thinking if they had like a person having some mental health issues, it could go really south. <laughs> I'm surprised they let him do that. But, you know, but anyway, <laughs> back to my other question. I mean... Yeah. Is there, are there things that you've seen work really well, like as a community organizers or really implode an organization that you would like to caution people about or? No, I think it, it really depends on that initial group of people that come together. And I was co-founder of a gallery in Bayview called Art Knife 124. And that opened in 2008. Okay. As this little, it was this little space, and connected to it was a cafe. And where was that? On Third Street at Fairfax. Okay. And right across from what used to be Walgreens. Oh, R.I.P. <laughs> yeah, now it's Lucky's. And so there were a group of ten of us volunteering our time, and we changed the show every month for two years. Wow. And at least one year, if not two years, we did a street fair. Oh, cool. We had rides for kids and vendors and everything. And we all did this for free because we were very interested in bringing arts into the community and having the community involved. And it was very successful. So I've not been part of a group that's imploded. They may eventually fade out because, if, for instance, this group of 10 you know, it was, a, it was a lot of time and a lot of energy. And after a while, you'll say, I can't do this anymore. I have to get back to my work. Exactly. <laughs> so when new people take over, they don't make sure that they have the support that was there initially, then it kind of peters out. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Having done Royal Nonsuch, I think the reason it went on for so long, it lasted about 10 years. I think because it had this rotating model of leadership mm -hmm. and it was really flexible to allow for the, first of all, like it rotated who took on labor for the month or the show. But then it had this model where you could easily be like, I'm done, I got to step out. Mm -hmm. And then they could bring someone in and it was a peaceful transfer of power mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. never felt there was like a, a desire to overthrow or mm -hmm, i don't know mm -hmm. i mean i think 
yeah, where I was getting at was maybe organizations that don't do well have this scarcity mindset of who's in power, who's got information, and how toxic that can be when mm-hmm. people don't feel included or that they're getting all the information they need to make good decisions or that you know they're somehow like volunteering their time only to be at someone else's demand. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and I think so it, again it go it really goes back to who are the people in the group and either I've been unconsciously aware of picking up the vibes that are there. You're making good decisions. I'm making good decisions. Yeah. I'm I'm on the board for First Exposures. Oh, cool. And they just celebrated their 30th year. How long have you been in the area? A hundred (laughs) years. I moved to San Francisco in 1982. Oh, wow. Amazing. So, yeah. You're like 1929. (laughs) (laughs) That was a long time ago. Oh, Oh, my God. Let's talk about changes. Yeah. Um, Have you always been in the Bayview or... I've been in the Bayview since 1985. Wow. Oh, my God. You were there right away. <laughs> I won't say right away, but, but yeah. But three years. Three I years mean, after. Relative. Yeah, yeah. 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 Where did you live when you first got here? The Hate. Okay. That's cute. Yeah. How which I, I, lo- I love The Hate. I love living in Victorian, but I couldn't afford to buy one. Right. So my Even partner there. and I bought an affordable housing complex develop- unit in Bayview. And have you been in that same one? I've well, been in the same one. Oh wow! Yeah. And have you built it out, or have you done anything to it? Well, or? it was a it was a single family house, so you know it was it came ready to move in. Oh, that's so cool! <laughs> yeah, I guess I wouldn't know what the city was like at that point because I feel like there has been a fair amount of new construction since then. Gosh, yeah, <laughs> tons for better. And for there's worse. still a housing shortage. I guess one thing I wanted to ask. Oh, time. Oh, yeah, go for it. <laughs> Taking a break. Okay, so I was just checking in where we were at. So thinking about organizations, I mean, I don't know if you've had this experience, but in thinking about the resources or lack thereof in the Bay Area, how has money changed working in your collectives? Have you run into a situation where money has come into play and changed the dynamic? No. Okay. No, money hasn't changed the dynamic. Okay. It's for Black Space Residency... It's been really important because we have to pay for the space. Okay. You know, Minnesota Street's not giving it to us for free, so we have to pay for the studio space. And we also give a stipend to the artists, small, but something. And we've also received some grants that we've applied for, which made it possible for us to buy some equipment so that the artists can have privacy in their space to do whatever it is they want to do without other people looking over their shoulders. Right. And what kind of equipment did you get? We get people excited. Yeah. So we (laughs) have a computer. Oh, nice. So people are doing, making movies. They have- Like in the studio. In the studio. Because- MSP has a computer lab, but it's not very private. It's and... not private at all. Yeah. And that's that's the thing about being in the space at Minnesota Street. It's a great facility, great resources, but it's all shared. Yeah. You know, the wood shop, it's shared. Mm-hmm. The ceramic area, it's shared. The digital lab, it's shared. And... It's like being in a very nice grad program is what <laughs> it reminds me of because That computer lab and all the tools, it's like, what an amazing resource, but also you're in it with everyone else. Right. So there's an advantage and disadvantage. The advantage is it's not, you don't own the machines. You don't have to worry about it getting old. You don't have to worry about the maintenance of it. Somebody else takes care of that. They do become obsolete after a period of time. Right. And we have a machine there now. It's a 9900 Epson printer and it's... Probably seen its last days. Really? Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah, that's the whole thing, the photography equipment. I mean, how much equipment do you need at any given time as a photographer? Are you just constantly having to buy a new camera? Or? Well, no. It's Okay. With cameras, I mean, people have gone back to film. So oh. you can go use a Nikon F1, which is made in the 60s and 70s. Oh, wow. Well. It's the digital, depending on... Like production if, if, tools or yeah, something. Yeah, and the post-production tools are in the computer, um, but it really depends on what you want to use 
the digital camera for? Mm. Are you really making videos? Then maybe you should be looking at just getting a video camera that's dedicated. But if you're just doing it occasionally, then you get yourself a professional camera that's going to last forever. I bought my first digital camera finally after saying I'm not going to do digital. And I broke down and bought one. I've had it probably for 10 years now. Mm. But because I don't use a camera to make my work, I don't worry about it. <laughs> right. Yeah. How do you make your work? Is that proprietary information? No, it's, yeah, they're photograms. And for those who are listening, if you want to get a sense of photogram ideas, we'll look at Anna Atkins, who did cyanotypes. Man Ray made photograms really popular back in the 20s and 30s. And it's basically taking objects and laying them on top of photo paper in the darkroom and exposing the object and the paper to light and the object creates a white shadow. So it's like you're catching a shadow and everything that's exposed to light goes black. So that's the basic idea. And the same thing with cyanotype, you use the sun and you get a white silhouette of the object in a blue background. Oh, that's beautiful. So yeah, I've always loved how your work feels really tied into nature. And we've talked about this before a little bit, how human as leaf, like soaking in the sun or photograph as leaf too, mm -hmm. like it kind of serves the same function as like sun hitting a plant and like processing light through photosynthesis. Mm -hmm. And then even that word is, I mean, I guess because photo maybe means light in Latin or mm -hmm. something. Oh, I just put that together. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> oh my God. I was like, wait a minute. That's clever. But yeah, so there's this element of taking in to create that plants do and then your work does. And I don't know, what's your connection to nature? And, uh, well, and we didn't like... talk about my background. So oh yeah, I have a master's in landscape architecture and I'm a registered wow. landscape architect in the state of California. Whoa. So I've always been interested in plants from my earliest days. Um, I used to go to Georgia during the summers uh, when I was a kid from the age of five until I was 14, because I hit 14, I had to go to work during the summers. Oh, wow. And I just love being outdoors. And my family in the South had lots of land. Sometimes they would lease it out. Sometimes they didn't. And you'd see things grow. You'd see chickens running around oh God, being amazing. killed and pigs and snakes as well, which I had a fear of. Oh, you did? Okay. Probably still have a fear of snakes. And so I was just surrounded by nature all the time when I during the summers. Would you get to landscape at all while you were there? Or? No. So that was I had I didn't know what landscape architecture was until my junior year of college. Yeah. I mean, why would you know? I feel like that's not a necessity to life. Yeah. So there was I was interested in being an architect because oh, that cool. was the first Oh, acceptable professional career that my family said, okay, you can do that if you're not going to be a doctor, but mm -hmm. you can't be an artist because you'll be a struggling artist. But then in my junior year of college, I had to take an elective and I said, what's landscape architecture? And I went, oh, I want to do this. And so I was oh, going to cool. do both. But Destiny had me be accepted into the landscape program at the University of Pennsylvania. So... I stayed there and continued on to get my master's. And I still do landscape design occasionally. I try to do at least one project a year, mm -hmm. which keeps me connected to, to plants. And I learn new plants when you I do, do that. Yeah. I was going to ask how much of that was learning about botany, basically. Well, botany is a little different. Okay. Botany is a science, and it's understanding not only what plants are, but how they produce, the structure of them. And you didn't have to get I didn't into take, that. No. Cool. No, I just had to learn the names of them and which plants were appropriate for certain types of conditions. Got it. Okay. Because, yeah, I figured to be like a really good one, you'd have to have some sense of this will do well in this area. And so there'd be some plant science, but... This is a side note, but this weekend I went with someone who I'm going to have on the show who is an artist. I won't out her yet, but um, we went to, it's like a church that is supporting psychedelic 
studies and helps people take psychedelic plants. Mm -hmm. And in, I think it's partly because to be legally giving out psychedelics, you have to be a church. So that's like a California thing. But we started the session by singing plant time over and over again. It was like super random. He was like, plant time, plant time, plant time, plant time. And then everyone just kept singing it. And it was that's from, it. Yeah, it those was two words. Those two words the whole time. <laughs> so anyway, I wanted to share that. Again, this will be another episode. Okay. <laughs> but the reason I brought it up is because the whole talk that this pastor gave, this like psychedelic plant pastor, was to bring out all these different types of psychedelic plants and show you what they look like. And like he brought out an ice plant, mm -hmm. which are everywhere. Mm -hmm. He brought different kinds of succulent, and it just was kind of shocking to me how many of these plants we have in our backyard. And I'm not into, I don't take psychedelics, but mm -hmm. I was just curious. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know why I brought that up, but I just was like, we don't really know what we have around us. Well, we don't, we know what they are, but I didn't know any of the medicinal properties of any of these no, plants. No, and the lay people don't. But if you talk to healers, right, they know a ton about plants. And if you look at pharmacology, they go to the plant world, they see the advantages of certain plants, and they synthesize those chemicals. Right. And so they become man-made chemicals and they become our drugs. Right. So they always go back to the plant world. No, absolutely. Which is just, which is amazing when you think about it, because people think, oh, drugs, they just made it up. But no, this is coming from the plant world. Right. And I, and I hate that we're actually calling them psychedelics because... They're healing plants and the ones... I will say the group called it plant medicine, but I just wanted to yeah. identify what type of medicine. It's something that gives you a journey. Right. Or... But, but they have healing properties and the ones that have been approved are being used therapeutically for people who have psychological problems, dealing with stress and trauma, yeah. and they're incredibly effective. Have you taken any of them? No, I haven't. Yeah. I'm curious. I am too, you know. I mean, like, historically, after a certain age, even weed didn't react well with me. Mm -hmm. So I just haven't pursued that. And it related, related to the plants and photograms, I, in the back of my head for years, I've been wanting to do photograms of medicinal plants. Yeah. So one of these days I will get to that. I would um, love that because I think there's... There's so much metaphorical potential there with the unseen of the mm -hmm. plant world, which mm -hmm. is kind of what I think you're pulling out is like this. And that's, yeah. So the series that I have ongoing is called The Secret Life of Plants. Oh, yeah. Amazing. So because of the way I create the work, I use the plants as if they're a negative. And so you get to see sort of the inner workings mm -hmm. of the plants. Other than doing that type of work with them, do you use plants as medicine? Maybe not hallucinogenic. Yeah. And I was reminded about nettle, which is a very great cleanser. And so like, I, I'm out of nettle tea. For smudging, you mean? Or? No, tea. Oh. For tea. Or eating it. So a friend of mine actually made a nettle pasta. It was so good. Can we, what's the recipe? <laughs> I don't know. Do you just put it in the oil and like kind of create for, like a... To, to use the nettle? Or for eating. For, for eating, For I guess. eating, uh, you have to wear gloves because it's very prickly. Okay. And the little needles will get into you. And yeah. so you wear gloves when you pick it. But once you put it into blanched water, uh, it softens immediately. Oh, uh, okay. Cool. That's Yeah. And then tea, same thing. You tea, probably yeah. just boil it. Yeah. Well, I know like, yeah, mugwort is really popular up here. And that's a really great one for protective and cleansing. Mm -hmm. It's like really big in the UK. Mm -hmm. And some of those other like super witchy herbs mm -hmm. are like mm -hmm. very common over here. Yeah. And in fact, I met this woman on an airplane several years ago and she recommended lavender tea mm. before I go to bed. And I said, if I drink anything before I go to bed, I'd have to get up in the middle of the night and go pee. And lo and behold, I don't know what's in lavender, but yeah. it was totally relaxing and I didn't have to wake up in the middle of the night to go pee. Really? Well, that's huge for me as well, because I wake up like three times a night, <laughs> so, but I don't know what I'm drinking. Like, it must just be whatever it is, does not act like that. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, yes, I know we went off on the side there, but yeah, plants are pretty important. 
Yeah. I mean, anything else about them that resonates with you or? I just, I miss being in my garden on a regular basis because I've been so busy and focused on so many things. I have not been able to get into the garden like I used to. So now I'm attempting to get into the garden at least three times a week oh, well. in the evening, sort That's of between great. that that funny hour, like around five mm. before the news comes on, because I love watching PBS News Hour. Oh, you do? Oh, that's <laughs> cute. Um, so, yeah, I try to get out there for a little bit. It's like, okay, I gotta, gotta help help the plants here, because yeah. some things are being run over. Like by other, other... plants. Oh, yeah. really? So, yeah, morally, how do you feel about weeds, the idea of weeds? Because it's like they're all plants, and you uproot them. You're basically killing them. I try not to call them weeds. I call them wildflowers. Yeah. Right. <laughs> And it's like, okay, I'm not going to eat this dandelion, but it's got to go. And I know there's going to be more. I mean, you can't get all of them, but. You're the second person I've heard say that today. (laughs) Like literally, I was listening to a podcast and they just were comparing something to dandelions. It's kind of (laughs) random. Yeah, but yeah, it's interesting when you see dandelions at the farmer's market. The leaves. I am you know. interested in that. And it's supposed to be really good for, as like a diuretic. And I've been wanting to try that, actually. Mm-hmm. Especially because they're so common. You're like, at least we could do something with these. And, and people just do. throw them away. Yeah, the Chinese community, if you go into their stores and look at their herbs, their dandelion's going to be there. Oh, really? Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, I, I just say, I'm sorry, but you all have to move to make room for somebody else. You do? And then you just compost them? or Yeah. And you just say, sorry, yeah. don't come at me. <laughs> well, they know. They ha- I, we have an understanding. Really? Do you um, have a lot of plants on your in your house? I don't think there's a lot, but there's, there's probably not a lot. I try to keep one plant in each room. Oh, really? That's yeah. pretty light. And you don't think that they get lonely? No, I mean, and I say approximately. Like the living room, dining room are together, so there's probably six plants in those two rooms. Okay. So it's a- I was going to say, I kind of group mine together so that there's not one plant by itself unless it's got multiple roots mm-hmm. to it. Because I had one in my apartment in LA that I'd bought from a store and it just was not doing well. Mm-hmm. Like it was getting brown and then like things would fall off. And I kept moving it around because I'm like, oh, maybe it's the sun or like something about how I'm positioning it. And then finally I was like, I think you're lonely, actually. I think it didn't like that I was like, kind of judging it so harshly mm-hmm, by mm-hmm. moving it to all these different places. And so then I moved a different plant down next to it. Mm-hmm. And it seemed really happy. And it's been green. And mm-hmm. Oh, good. So I was like, oh, I think it has a friend now. <laughs> my plants tend to be large. I have a corn plant that's probably 12 feet tall. Okay. And it has multiple trunks coming out of it. Oh. So it's not alone. God damn. That's huge. <laughs> and my snake plants are probably about... Four to four to six feet tall. Oh my god, that's crazy! Yeah, so I because I think that's what this I one was. Ha- I kind of have a green thumb, so yeah. I have to be a little careful. Well, I would love to have photos to post <laughs> on Instagram. Well, before we go, I just wanted to ask if you because we talked at one point about you going to Psychic Horizons mm-hmm. to do some studies in mediumship or like intuition building. Mm-hmm. What's your stance on like the the other world? Were you going for any particular reason, or you no, didn't end up going? Right? Yeah, I mean, we talked about the ancestors, and I and I consider that part of the psychic realm because you have to be open to hearing whatever messages are being sent your way. And I'm still interested in psychic horizons. In fact, the intro session introduced me to another idea of meditation Mm. that I've incorporated and that has to do with the rope that tethers you to the center of the earth. Oh, like grounding. Grounding. Yeah, Yeah. grounding cord. So I do the grounding cord every morning. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. I I have a group of friends that were kind of in this like morning drawing circle and we all kind of agreed that we have a really hard time grounding. Hmm. And one of them was in a class that she shared that with her teacher. And her teacher said, oh, well, you must have a wounding on your mother cord because it's connected to your umbilical cord, mm-hmm. kind of the the ghost of it or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that that's like a whole thing is the wounding of so- something to do with the mother. And that can be passed down generationally. Mm-hmm. And that 
an alternative that she gave was instead of imagining a cord, if that doesn't resonate, you can kind of envision a skirt almost around you going from your waist mm -hmm. and then going out the way like an A-frame skirt does mm -hmm. into the ground mm -hmm. and then rooting and like going around the earth mm -hmm. in, instead of it like going it's straight down, which I did do and thought like that was resonating with me a little bit more because mm -hmm. I think something about the cord, I don't, yeah, I don't always feel so connected or stable, partly mm -hmm. because I always get in my head about, well, what if I'm laying down? Like, where is the cord in relationship to my body being mm -hmm. perpendicular to the core? Mm -hmm. Which that's really not the point of the exercise. But it's cool yeah. to hear it resonates for you. Yeah. I mean, I meditate every morning before I get out of bed. I sit up and do it right there. And then because once my day starts, that's it. Yeah, you're <laughs> off running around with your backpack <laughs> talking yeah. to everyone in the city. <laughs> Have you ever thought about running for office? No. No. Mm -mm. Not interested. No. Yeah, I had a neighbor when I was a kid. She's like, you're going to be a politician. I'm like, okay. And I watched my mother be campaign manager. Oh, you did? For somebody who won. And I'm like, this is politics? Mm, this is not for me. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, I know. There's a, there's a lot of ego involved. Definitely. Yeah, I've supported, I like to do volunteering for different campaigns, but even in ad creation, inherently the negative ads grab people's attention, and but it's not something that resonates with me personally. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff can get kind of hard when like statistically it does work, but then you don't feel good about it mm -hmm, as a human. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I did want to say that I've I've known that I've had some psychic abilities mm. and I've saw the opportunity to kind of delve in there with psychic horizons. Yep. And so I still need to do that. I still want to do that. Mm. And if you notice, I'm trying to be careful with the words that I use as opposed to have to. Right. Like, I want to. Yeah. It's a lot more for. Definitely. Oh, that's great. Yeah, like, it should be fun. Oh, yeah, totally. Do you have any ghost stories before I let you go? No, not not one that I want to share. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Ooh, mysterious. I can't wait to hear it offline, maybe. <laughs> no. Okay, cool. Well, is there anything coming up for you that you want to talk about? This will probably be later this summer. So anything you want people to know? No. If you want to see an example of my public artwork, you can at the corner of 8th and Market. It's a new BART entry. It's a glass box, and oh, above the box is a canopy. And on the ceiling of the canopy is my art. And that's in the BART? That's at street level. Oh, at cool. 8th and Market. Oh, really cool. That's great. And also, I want to give a shout out to Zoe Teleporis, who is no longer here in the Bay Area, but she was responsible for really building out a lot of the public art in the new T-line that goes into Chinatown and North Beach, mm -hmm. that kind of the northern half of it. Mm -hmm. But I feel like she's made a big strides towards getting San Francisco to have these type of, and also SFO, like have this kind of value of local artists and i think it's cool to see because you know you go to new york and that's like the first thing you're hit by is how much art there is everywhere yeah and so it's cool to see that we're trying to do that as well yeah it is definitely but all right well thank you so much ron well, thank you for having me yeah this was really lovely That's all for this week's episode. Thanks for side-wooing with us. We release episodes every other week on Thursday. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate, follow, subscribe, and review our podcast for good karma points. Until we meet again in the side -wooing.